Hey there, thanks for joining me for another live video. Uh, what I'd like to do today is just throw out some thoughts on this notion of grace. It's a very popular word, it's a word we, we use all the time. It's part of the vocabulary of our daily life, whether we consider ourselves spiritual or secular or whatever. Um, and I want to just compare and contrast two notions of the term, uh, the popular notion of the term and the kind of deep uh, theological sense of the term. Uh, what I'm using here as a background is a book called Christ and the End of Meaning by a writer, Paul Hessert. I'm currently doing a book study on this subject uh, online. Um, and in fact, uh, there's one of the seminars I've given away free. So if you like what I'm looking at here, check that out because it goes into a lot, lot more depth. So basically, uh, the term grace and its popular usage, um, by popular usage, I mean what you'll find in religious circles and in secular circles, uh, works from a very basic notion uh, that we live between the actual and the ideal, right? So these are two philosophical terms, the is and the ought, or, you know, the actual, the ideal. And some things are in the actual, like rocks and pillows and, and whatever, they are just actual. And some things you could say exist in potentiality and maybe a subatomic uh, particle in superposition. But to be human is to experience this. Now, we don't, uh, we're not conscious of it most of the time. It's like grammar. It's something that's there in the background that frames our existence, but that we're, we're not really aware of unless we're doing philosophy but it still operates nonetheless. And the, the, the idea is that um, sorry, guilt and condemnation are the experience of living in this in-between. They're kind of like the existential evidence. Guilt is when we feel that we haven't lived up to something. You know, there's some ideal we have, whether we articulate it clearly or not, something that we feel we didn't live up to, and so we feel a bit bad about it. And then condemnation is just a stronger term for that. Condemnation is the sense that we as an individual or as a family or as a community will never live up to the ideal, that the ideal is always somehow just out of reach. So these, these two terms describe an existential reality. And you, know, you could say that there is no getting away from guilt and condemnation. There is no escape from these existential realities. All we can do um, in, in terms of our daily lives is turn that guilt in on, on ourselves and hate ourselves or project it out onto someone else, create a scapegoat, um, and that they, they will carry that guilt and condemnation and kind of protect us from experiencing it. Now, within this frame, uh, grace is a term that we use, and there's generally three ways we use it. Uh, I'll use it in terms of an example of uh, two kids playing and uh, one child takes a toy from her baby brother, right? So the first expression of grace might be that you say to the kid, listen, you didn't really mean it. You didn't really know this was your little brother's toy, so don't worry about it, right? The second might be you did wrong. You did know you were taking your brother's toy, but I'll give you a second chance or a third chance, or a fourth chance, or a 40th chance, doesn't matter. And then the third notion of grace is, you know what, you took your brother's toy, but on the grand scheme of things, 
it's not that important, don't worry about it. Right? These are all perfectly natural responses, nothing wrong with them, but that's generally how we think of grace. Or to take a slightly different example, a legal example, let's imagine a criminal breaks into a house and steals some money. Now they're brought to court and you know, the judge might, for example, say, well, listen, uh, you didn't know what you were doing, right? You thought the house was derelict. It looked derelict. It looked like nobody lived there. You were just horsing around. You broke in. And so we're going to show you a little grace here. Or a judge might say, listen, this is your first time committing a crime. And so we're going to give you a second chance. Or, or the judge might go, uh, hold on a second. At the moment, we have like bigger fish to fry. You broke into a house that you thought was derelict. Uh, you know, don't worry about it. Okay. Now, I don't know if those happen in reality or not, but we could imagine that happening. Those are forms of judicial grace. But then, you know, let's imagine that that person is rearrested and this time they're thrown in prison. Uh, and then let's imagine that they go to, say, Narcotics Anonymous or something, if they're a drug taker, and uh, they're sitting there and they have an experience of deep grace. Not cheap grace, but deep grace. This experience is not operating within that structure. There's an actual and there's an ideal and, hey, you didn't live up to it, but we'll give you a second chance or you didn't really mean it or whatever. This radical grace suddenly strikes out that entire symbolic system. There is no actual and ideal. You are just who you are. You're accepted for who you are. You don't need to strive by will to get to some place. You don't need to engage your strength and your power to try to overcome something. You just let all of that go. You give up your will. You give up the striving and you become stationary. And you face yourself. Uh, Paul Tillich says grace is the acceptance that you're accepted. So what happens is you experience this radical acceptance that allows you to look at everything you've done and conf confront it, right? All of your demons and all of your ghosts. Now, interestingly, this is the place where real change can happen. At the very moment that you lay down this striving, that Paul Hessert calls heroicism. The hero is the one who engages their will and gets to somewhere. The moment you give all of that up, and Hessert calls this second move the saint, the saint who doesn't move through will to get to somewhere, but who gives all of that up and becomes stationary. This actually existentially is where real change can begin to happen. In AA, it can be called rock bottom. The point when you stop striving, stop trying, stop anything, and just accept that you're broken. But that rock bottom is actually the place where, where change can, you know, begin to, can begin to occur. So let's take an example um, of a fascist community. And this fascist community, uh, you know, traditionally, of course, well, fascists are against the Jewish community. And traditionally, the reason, like if you look at Nazi Germany, is the Jews are this privileged group who have the money, who have the power, their power they have the economic system, the educational system. Um, and so they can be justifiably persecuted. They can be attacked and destroyed. And for the fascist, there is a sense of disease. Something is wrong in society. The blame for that 
for that, like between the actual and the ideal of society, so that disease, the guilt, the condemnation is externalized, it's put onto the Jewish community. And then there is a fantasy that if they got rid of that community, there would be this ideal, this something that would get rid of the, the disease. Now, uh, psychoanalytically, it's the opposite. It's not that there's an ideal, someone's in the way, and then you feel disease, but rather you start with a sense of disease, the guilt. Then you externalize it onto a scapegoat and then you fantasize something that's beyond that scapegoat. But you need the scapegoat because the scapegoat prevents you from looking at the horror of your own life, the problems within the community. An example of this can be seen in the Soviet Union whenever uh, the kulaks were blamed for a lot of the economic and social problems um, uh, in the Soviet Union. So they were the scapegoat. Now, the problem was, as the kulaks were persecuted and killed, it became obvious, you know, increasingly that the problems that you were putting onto the kulaks were actually problems that already existed in the society. And the scapegoat was actually what you needed to protect yourself from seeing the traumas. So what happened is the definition of what a kulak was began to widen and widen and widen. A kulak wasn't just somebody who owned the means of production and employed peasants. The kulak was someone who just had an independent piece of land. Or a kulak eventually was someone who thought like a kulak or who would think like a kulak if they were given the opportunity to. So in other words, the, the system actually required the scapegoat. It, it psychologically required the enemy in order to prevent itself from looking at its own problems and difficulties. Uh, grace is the breakdown of this entire structure of an ideal, something that gets in the way of the ideal and the disease that you think you can get rid of by getting rid of the scapegoat. That entire system is done away with. You are accepted. You experience that. You're able to look at your own poverty, your own brokenness. And in that experience, you get rid of the scapegoat. Now, to understand what that means, just think of the difference between a hypochondriac who thinks they have cancer, right? So someone is a hypochondriac and they always are going to the doctor because they're sure they have cancer. Um, and then let's imagine that they actually do find out they have cancer. They're still a hypochondriac, right? Just like, you know, the phrase, just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean they're not out to get you. You could be paranoid but the FBI really are out to get you. That's possible, but it doesn't mean you're not paranoid. It just means that there's empirical evidence that allows you to uh, imagine that you're not paranoid, right? So in the same way, the hypochondriac, they need their cancer. They have disease and trauma. They put it onto the cancer. They blame the cancer for it. And then they imagine if they could get rid of the cancer, then the, everything would be great. Compare that to someone who isn't a hypochondriac, but finds out they have cancer. They don't psychologically require the cancer. They just have it. And so in a sense, they are better equipped to fight it because they don't require it. The hypochondriac is psychically invested in the cancer. And they're psychically invested in the cancer. Like, you know, I mean, it's hard to say in a every case, but like some hypochondriacs will be invested in the cancer because that allows their anxiety to be focused around something, some object, something that can be taken out um, that can fix everything. 
Grace is the experience of the loss of this entire libidinal investment in a scapegoat and in an ideal and the acceptance of who you are. Now, someone will say, well, should we give grace to a fascist group? But I think that misunderstands what grace is, that grace is not something that you give. Grace is something that you receive in the sense of it's something that you experience. It's something that happens within you. And what I mean by that is it's the acceptance that you're accepted. So let's imagine a fascist who is externalizing onto the Jewish community all of their traumas and anxieties and the brokenness of their, their, their upbringing and their community. And they're putting it onto this Jewish community and they're imagining an ideal beyond it. If they experience grace, that means that they no longer are caught up libidinally in this ideal and thus not caught up in blaming some scapegoat, but rather they're saying they're able to face and bring up their anxieties and traumas to the surface. And this very act, therefore, means that they will begin to not despise and scapegoat somebody. Now, that, um, and that happens all the time for all of us. So grace is, is not really like, I give you grace, but grace occurs and its, its evidence is in the fruits it produces. A more humane individual, a more caring and loving individual, someone who can engage in real political disagreement without requiring an enemy. So, you know, uh, an example that I thought was interesting during the elections in America, where there were these signs, if you remember, that were held up that said, love trumps hate. And uh, I thought this was a really interesting Freudian sign because for some of us, actually, we love Trump's hate. It's not love Trump's hate. It's we love Trump's hate, as in we love you know, looking it up and reading articles and what, looking at Twitter stuff. We are libidinally invested in having an enemy. And it's, it's, so, it's not a contingent thing that we fight. It's we're libidinally invested in an enemy. And if that enemy began to dissipate, we'd have to kind of find a new enemy or put more people into that pack because we require it. Grace frees you from the need to have a scapegoat, which allows you then to actually really fight against uh, you know, injustice and things without actually weirdly requiring it in order to stop looking at yourself. Because in a sense, none of us believe in free speech. We all believe in censorship, uh, in that there's so much we hide from ourselves, so much we cannot speak. And that's what free association is. Free association isn't uh, creating a space where people can say anything they want. The point of free association is you create that space to show that we can't. <laughs> that, that as soon as you try to speak freely, very quickly you come up against hesitation, silence, your brain goes blank. In other words, you stop yourself. And grace is the experience where you don't have to stop yourself. And actually when you're able to free associate, that's actually a sign of health. It's not what you do to get to a problem. When you are able to free associate, um, in a sense you have experienced this 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 breakdown and this transformation. So I think that's the deep meaning of, of grace. And, and by the way, uh, Luther, I think, really grasped this. I think Luther was fundamentally right whenever he felt that this group of texts that we call the New Testament had something about them that were trying to address 
a question. And the question was what to do with guilt and condemnation and all of the violence and all of the destruction that comes from those terms. So I think he had a fundamental insight when he, in a sense, used that lens to understand this grouping of random texts and that he experienced something of, of, of what that grace looks like. And in fact, even predestination, I think, is a very interesting um, uh, expression of this because the hero is the one who wills. They try to get from one place to another. They're always trying, trying, trying. But in the kind of myth of predestination, there is an idea that you can't will anything, right? So what predestination does, and in a sense why I think it's philosophically true, and I mean that in a sense of it's, uh, it's existential truth. Um, in predestination, you can't grasp anything. You can't even grasp not grasping. You don't even grasp wanting to let go of the whole act of grasping something. You, you existentially let all of that go. You enter into a form of stationary positioning, which therefore, weirdly, not weirdly, but um, paradoxically, from a human perspective, um, or from a common sense perspective, but uh, it has actually the place where you can begin to change. And that's the difference between the hero and the saint, that experience of grace, where you no longer grasp or try to grasp that you don't grasp, but you be. Um, something that we see in... Um, you know, in Carl Rogers, who I'm not a huge fan of, but his whole idea of unconditional acceptance, that when the patient can embrace that, um, it's, it, it actually um, can cause a radical transformation. And I think this is something that we can apply politically. Okay, so there are some thoughts on, on grace. I'm going to look at uh, the Q&A now and see if you've got any thoughts. I apologize because in the last video, we went through lots of questions. So maybe um, if you clicked in you don't have any but uh, I'll see what you're saying uh, oh Scott's asking about the seminar yeah the seminar is called losing the lost object and in it I try to define what I think Christianity is and my definition of Christianity is tweetable right but it took me 20 years to come to it <laughs> but uh, so sadly my entire life work can be put into a tweet and the tweet is um, Christianity is the subtraction of our libidinal investment in the lost object. The subtraction of our libidinal investment in the lost object. But if you want to know what I mean by that, uh, you're going to have to probably you know, delve quite deeply, but start with the lecture. So just look for losing the lost object. Um, I say I've given it out free, so you'll find it. It's about an hour and a half long. And um, it'll, it'll delve into that and also... Uh, it, it folds in this notion of grace and it folds in this notion of radical acceptance and the breakdown of the structure of actual and ideal that you find in secular and spiritual environments. It's kind of ubiquitous. Um, let's see. Uh, Myron, is that, is that right? Ready to pronounce your name? Very cool name. Appreciating the definitions from Ridley, California. I don't know where that is, but I know where California is. I happen to be in California myself. Um, so yeah, does anybody have any questions or comments about what we've looked at? Um, one question from the last session, which I'll probably delete. So if you want to watch it, watch it quick. Uh, it was from a friend of mine, Cam, 
And he, he said, like, well, what if, does that mean that, you know, when Jesus condemned the Pharisees, for example, he's just, you know, hasn't experienced grace, so he's projecting onto the Pharisees a type of scapegoating. And, um, you know, in a sense, what I'm trying to say is, no, 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 that there's a very big difference. This is why I mentioned, to be honest, the hypochondriac. There's a very big difference between someone requiring an enemy um, or, or a problem. Uh, so, for example, homelessness, right? As long as there's the homeless, we can feel good. Oh, we're looking after the homeless. I go out and I, I give them bedding and I go to a soup kitchen and I give people food. Oh, that's wonderful. But I can think that I'm good news to the poor and the, the homeless. Um, but in a sense, um, I require the homeless. Now, why do I require the homeless? I require the homeless because the homeless actually are a result of a problem in our society. They're, they're not a problem. They're the solution to a problem. They're a solution to a problem in our community. And what we do is because maybe there is not mental health provision or lack of employment or very you know, bad poverty, bad education, whatever it is, those problems in our society create a homeless population. That is a solution. Because as long as we have the homeless population, we can police them, we can arrest them, we can do this or that, but we don't have to look at the fundamental problems in the community itself. So weirdly, we can feel good about ourselves by looking after the homeless, and we don't have to change anything in our community. But in this notion, the idea is, well, the homeless are, are the, the site of truth. They are the prophets. They are the good news to us. Because the homeless... Uh, show us the problems within our own society. They call us to repentance, i.e. to change, to transformation, etc. Um, and so, you know, you've got to, but you're, in, in one example, you need the homelessness if you refuse to look at the traumas of your own community. But in the other, if you look at the traumas within your own community, you experience grace, you're able to bring all that to the surface and start to address those then you're not psychically invested in having to have a homeless population so you can actually be more effective at working with the homeless and making a real difference. So that's just kind of one example of saying that the differences between whether you require, like for example, Lacan uses um, the example of a man who's jealous of his partner because he thinks that she's sleeping around and then he finds out she is. Uh, so he feels like, oh, I was justified. But Lacan says, no, he, he was paranoid. He needs his jealousy. He just was, in this instant, empirically correct. Um, there, if we need the enemy, uh, we're invested in the enemy, that's a problem. We're probably covering over something. We're covering over our own sense of guilt by putting it onto somebody else. But in the experience of grace, we kind of let that go. Um, let's see. Uh, how does one apply this definition of grace to relationships in which one is the scapegoat? So Victoria is asking, so when you are actually scapegoated, you are the community or the individual um, who is being projected on. Uh, and, you know, so much of that depends on the situation. So, for example, in a situation like, you know, in therapy, for example, in psychoanalysis, not therapy, psychoanalysis, um, uh, that's actually encouraged. Um, because it's a safe environment, you know, the therapist can become a scapegoat, you know, you can shout at them, you can hate them, you can do all of that. It's a very controlled environment and that's part, you know, then it's, you know, used as part of the therapy. But, um, if you're, if it's a community that's being scapegoated, um, and there's violence being done, then 
um, well, th this, I'll answer it like this. Go like, this is why I'm not saying that this notion of grace usurps the, the legal system, for example. Like, violent people, um, I, I'm very critical of, to be honest, uh, the prison system. Very, very critical. So, um, you know, I, I've got some friends who think that you could actually do without a prison system. I, and I don't know exactly whether that's the case or not. But I'm very, very critical of it. But let's say someone is very violent and needs to be kept away from society. Um, yeah, we have the legal system that we embrace. But then that person is in prison and then they say, go to a therapist and then they, they do this work. They're kind of two different dimensions. So we still operate in a world where we um, try to put people away who do violence, who hurt, who kill, who maim um, other people because they're a scapegoat. We want to get rid of them. Um, and yet as well, we want a society where those people can um, experience this, this other dimension we're talking about. So I don't know if I don't think I answered that at all. As I said, it depends whether you're a scapegoat in your family, whether you're a community being scapegoated, whether you're doing it in a therapeutic setting. Each, each of those, I think, kind of leads to a slightly different, slightly different answer. Um, so let me see if there's any final questions or thoughts uh, before I, I click out. Uh, no, I think that's, that's us for now. Sometimes I don't see your comments till actually I log out because it takes a few seconds for them to come in. So if I didn't answer your questions, I'm very sorry. I apologize. But I will be back soon um, and uh, hopefully we'll do one of these in the next few days. Thanks for clicking in. I really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again soon.